you know, there's a lot of things on the Eastern Shore that are very relaxed, and that's one of the beauty things about being here is being able to come here and, and just enjoy what it is. But we try to make sure that we make everything a priority so people understand that they're important to us. The Eastern Shore Virginia Broadband Authority is connecting premises in Virginia one section at a time. They began around 2008 with funding help from NASA when the government facility on Virginia's Wallops Island needed better connectivity through fiber. Since then, the authority has started taking advantage of the infrastructure to connect the local smaller communities with an open access fiber to the home network. In this interview, Christopher talks with Robert Bridgem from the Authority, who describes the community and the Authority's efforts in their ongoing projects. The publicly owned infrastructure creates the opportunities for more competition, a range of services, and improved local connectivity. Now here's Christopher with Robert Bridgem from the Eastern Shore of Virginia Broadband Authority. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Robert Bridgem, the Executive Director of Eastern Shore of Virginia Broadband Authority. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much. So let me just dive in with a quick question. What's the Eastern Shore? I mean, I actually visited it as a child. I have very fond memories, but aside from a lot of sand, I don't recall a whole lot. <laughs> well, the East, Eastern Shore of Virginia is basically a, a little peninsula that sticks out towards the Atlantic Ocean, and it basically is on the very southern edge of the Maryland Eastern Shore, and it, it goes right to the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel feeding into Virginia Beach. It's a community that's got a lot of history in agriculture and aquaculture. Um, we have a lot of watermen here. We have a lot of farming here. We deal with a lot of poultry here, and, and it's kind of a, a really great more rural environment where you're look if you're looking to get out in the uh, great outdoors, hunting, fishing. And what we'll be talking about today is this Eastern Shore of Virginia Broadband Authority, which is doing some interesting wireless and fiber projects. Uh, we'll we'll get to that in a second, but but first, I'm I'm just curious why an authority, which is the that's the entity that uh, owns these things and is sort of responsible for these investments, but um, why an authority rather than a county or a local government? In the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, the counties themselves are not allowed to sell telecommunication services as a service to commercial entities or residences of the area. So Virginia law created a, an act called the Wireless Services Authorities Act, and it, it allowed for the formation of what they call a wireless authority, such as ourselves. Very similar to a bridge authority or a tunnel authority, basically gives us a limited scope of things that we can and can't do. So we can sell telecommunications services. We can charge fees for those services. We can actually provide voice over IP and voice services. Um, the only thing we can't do is provide cable television services, at least typical uh, channelized ca uh, cable television services. The idea behind it was that it, it gave the Commonwealth the opportunity to have other organizations that are, we are a political subdivision of the state, so we're kind of like a, a county as far as the hierarchy of political subdivisions but we are a standalone entity. Our, our board happens to be formed from the two counties. We've got Northampton County, which is on the southern end of the eastern shore, and Accomac County, who's on the northern edge of the eastern shore, um, had a joint resolution to form us. And so two of our board members are the two county administrators, and then three of our board members are three community members at large agreed to by the two counties to ensure governance and steering of the organization. And you're going on 10 years now of, uh, of improving Internet access via the authority. Absolutely. In, in April, we hit the 10-year mark. We're very excited about that. 
That's wonderful. And uh, so I think it makes sense to maybe dive into what, what happened in shortly after creating the authority. And, you know, from what I've read, it sounds like you got going with a little bit of a wireless service. Well, we didn't actually do any wireless. The, so the, the name is, is somewhat misleading. It is called the Wireless Services Authorities Act, but it doesn't necessarily imply any particular that you necessarily do or don't have to do wireless. So the ESVBA, as we like to call ourselves, because it's a lot shorter than Eastern Shore Virginia Broadband Authority, got together and worked with the local communities. We were given some additional money from the very beginning from the two counties. We, there was some money that was provided by NASA because we've got some federal organizations such as NASA that's in our, within the territory, um, and additional funding sources to build an initial fiber optic backbone that basically went from the northern edge of the eastern shore near Pocomoke, Maryland, across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is about a 23-mile or 22-mile bridge into Virginia Beach. And that was the original core of it was to, one, to connect NASA into Virginia Beach to give NASA alternative connectivity and better connectivity. So the second reason is that the the Broadband Authority, when we created our original business plan, was in addition to the NASA piece, was also to be able to create a, a a infrastructure on the eastern shore that had previously not existed. The only provider that was here on the shore as a ubiquitous coverage of the shore was Verizon as a local phone company or an ILEC. And they have some DSL service in some parts of the shore, but it's as traditional with a lot of DSL deployments, the copper is what's important and there's a lot of bad copper on the shore and so far, the phone company hasn't really been interested in upgrading or maintaining the, fiber, uh, the copper plant. So the people of the shore have continued to suffer, and there's quite a few places where there was absolutely zero coverage. So when we built out the backbone, we also had agreed that we would also start to connect businesses, uh, commercial entities, government organizations, hospitals, and, and healthcare environments, as well as other internet providers um, and telecommunications providers to basically be the underlying um, trunking or piping, if you would, between all these different organizations on the shore so they had more reliable connectivity, higher bandwidths available, and hopefully driving the cost down over time. And we've accomplished all of that. The last thing that was sort of on our list of original things we wanted to do was we wanted to make sure that everybody on the eastern shore had broadband coverage to their house. Our original plans were to work with different uh, Internet service providers and basically facilitate their ability to reach the end users and us, again, becoming the trunk or the piping between them and their end users or tower sites so they can reach them in the wireless cases. Um, about a year and a half ago, our board, under quite a few um, pieces of feedback from the local leaders in the community, the residents of the, peop of the people of Eastern Shore, has been constantly pressured and said, hey, why can't you just do it directly to the end user? You've got cable up and down roads. You've got cables, you know, right by my house. I can I can throw a, you know, tennis ball and hit your cable. Why can't I use it? And so the board last September made a decision to start doing fiber to the home, in a test town called Harberton, Virginia. And we started to build it and sell it and connect customers, and it was working well. We had. Um, a fairly good signing rate. We had services that were working very well. People were incredibly pleased with it. And so when you say that, that that test, was that actually the fall of 2016? That was the fall of 2016. That's correct. Okay. And so now you're doing more work in 2017 and you're about to fill us in on that. Correct. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting that we're already past that. I can't believe it yeah, myself. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, time flies when you're having fun. 
So in the spring of 2017, the board approved opening up two additional areas for fiber to the home and starting to deploy additional areas. And then in the fall, early winter this year, or in tw- at the end of 2017, I apologize, the board had agreed to basically open up areas of the of the eastern shore in an organized fashion and an ordered list as the staff can handle it to enable fiber to the home to everywhere where we have cable currently. So we have cable on about approximately 300 miles of roads on the eastern shore. So we're in the process in the midst of that. I think we've got seven areas open at this point. Or I'm sorry, nine areas open. And continuing to open up new areas, hopefully about a pair every month until we've got all of our existing areas opened up. And then looking at what the strategy is beyond that to continue to reach further and further into the the next into the more rural areas to make sure that everyone has access to to broadband if they desire it. And when you when you talk about those three hundred miles, about what percentage of the territory is that? Like half of the relevant people that could be covered, or less, or more? It's about twenty to twenty five percent of the the residences of the Eastern Shore are on our route on the existing routes that we have. Okay. So we can enable about a quarter of the people in the Eastern Shore have access for broadband today. And when you, let's just go back in time briefly to when you originally started, because this is something that we run into frequently, often with county networks and more backbone kind of networks. And that's, um, you have this backbone fiber and originally you're, you know, you're connecting NASA, you're connecting several other key sites. Um, If I'm a business in between there, uh, do you, uh, as ESVBA, do you uh, run a lateral uh, to that business, or was that the responsibility of the internet service provider that would be offering service to that person or entity? We can sell customers in multiple ways, both directly to the end user, and also we can sell it to the ISPs that may be buying a service to an end user. Either way, we provide the lateral or the the distribution cable and then the entrance cable into a, a customer's premise and deliver a demarcation point within the customer's property and then hand off to that customer. So we, we build everything and provide the electronics at the end of the fiber. We, everything is lit. And one of the things I saw was that you, um, along with others in Virginia, it seems like Virginia has been a real pioneer of this, uh, use community development block grants as part of your funding to expand some of your network. Yes. Yeah, so originally, as I mentioned, there were several funding sources. The CDBG grants were part of some of the communities that we were able to get money for to help build out those communities, such as Chicoteague and such. Yeah, I just think it's worth pointing out because, well, West Virginia has just devoted some money for that. And, and I think a lot of people aren't aware of the potential power of, the, uh, of those particular grants. Uh, it's more of a, a more recent tool, it feels like, although I think you did it <laughs> before anyone else did. Yep, it was a good move. Your network has been enabling both wireless and wired services, right? That's correct. We sell to both wireless internet companies we sell to traditional telecom companies that are buying lease circuits from us to get to sell sites or to large commercial entities. And then we sell to traditional commercial entities, such as insurance agencies, doctor's offices, you know, schools, things of that nature. Are there any residents or businesses that are actually getting, you know, writing like a monthly check to you? Or do you entirely just facilitate the third-party ISPs connecting customers? All of our services are on a monthly rate basis. So we provide, whether it be to an ISP or to an end business, we provide the circuit on a monthly rate and and they subscribe to a particular quantity of bandwidth over a particular term that they select. So we, and we sell it to, again, to the end user. And if they're looking for internet, we'll provide them the IP space and the routing and and all the access to the internet. If they choose to buy uh, 
a multi-point WAN so they can tie their three or four offices together or seven to eight offices together. We'll provide that layer two connectivity so that way they've just plug in and they can see all their sites. Or to the ISPs, we'll provide them backhaul and or internet access if they ask for it so they can, again, reach the end users themselves and or put up towers and then distribute further. So you're wholesaling and retailing, effectively. We are. Except yep. for cable services, which you're not allowed to retail, and which I'm sure, actually, <laughs> if I was you, I might wake up every morning thanking the state of Virginia for <laughs> not <laughs> not allowing me to get into that. <laughs> we are definitely not complaining about you it. Know, I'll just say that it's a two-edged sword. I feel really bad for like networks like um, Bristol, Virginia, where uh, if they had the ability to do cable services, I think the, the Bristol, Virginia, the BVU authority would have been able to do a lot in southwestern Virginia. So I, I shouldn't make too much fun, but it is worth noting that it is such a headache that if you can supply your community with good connectivity without getting into cable, so much the better for you. <laughs> yep. Although I will say that there's still a large demand, even though services and the demand is moving towards over-the-top products such as Hulu and Netflix and, and Sling and things of those, you know, products of those nature, there's still an awful lot of demand for traditional cable services. And, and you know, even here on the shore, there's, there's quite a lot of gaps where there is no cable service other than satellite services. And I think there's a lot of rural Virginia that has those types of in conditions and environments where if somebody wanted to start offering a cable service, although I don't know if I'd necessarily go into that business at this day and age, there's still certainly a lot of captive audience that would be very interested in it. Right. We certainly hear that. And it very much depends on the demographics, too. I think a number of people that are less savvy technologically really prefer to be able to you know, get the Nationals games, if that's what they follow, or Baltimore um, on over their uh, TV rather than having to fiddle with uh, some third-party devices. Yep. So are there any lessons learned over the, the years that you've been working there? I mean, have you um, made any sort of changes to how you do things uh, that you'd be able to share with others so they don't do it wrong the first way or in a suboptimal way? Well, I'll, I'll say one lesson right off the bat is that our, our original business plan was, was instrumental in, in steering the original organization has continued to be that. So 10 years later, we still are able to use our original business plan as a reference a point of reference to say, this was our original plan, and we're still following that plan. And and you should always make adjustments to plans as the real world forces you didn't you were unforeseen. However, having that original plan that was forward enough looking to be able to continue to be material a decade later is obviously instrumental in success of an organization. The other thing that we found that was was important to us was we ran this organization very similar to a, a private industry. So we. We kept the organization very lean. We continued to only hire as on an ad, as-needed basis. We found people that were highly skilled in multiple areas, so we were able to sort of have a Swiss Army knife to solve different problems. So if I'm placing cable on the telephone pole, I can have one of my technicians place on the telephone pole, and he can also splice, and or he can also or she can also put equipment in electronics and do some troubleshooting. So we were able to, with less people, be able to do an awful lot within the organization before we had to start adding headcount. And I think that continued to, to greatly aid in our success because as a small organization, we don't have a lot of business. So it's not like I have you know, enough jobs to keep five guys doing construction and, and five gals doing you know, underground and five guys doing this. And most small organizations, you don't have that demand. So hiring people with, that, with multiple skill sets 
at a reasonable rate is a much more successful way of running a smaller organization. And, and we try to keep it lean and small. Right. And that's, it's a common problem, I think, among those who um, hire too many people early on, figuring that future sales will justify that because um, you can really harm your business by having too many people floating around before you can pay all their salaries. Absolutely. One of the things that uh, I'm curious about is as you're expanding the network now, are there new sources of funding? I mean, are you getting contributions from the county? Are you entirely self-sustaining or are there new grants coming in? How does that all work? So currently and in, in for well over half a decade, the ESUBA has been self-sustaining. So we, we have, we're cash flow positive. We're running in the black, although we are a, we're a non-taxable, obviously, government entity but we have operated basically out of the existing revenue streams that we've established. And that was something else that probably is a good lesson learned too, is we, a lot of municipal broadband organizations that are out there, and I'm familiar with quite a few of them up in the Northeast, especially said, well, you know, we'll build this and we've got a lot of grant money and we'll make this very, very cheap. And they, they literally made the prices to the point where they didn't think about the day after and so you have to operate bucket trucks and you have to have testers and you have to have staff that's available 24-7 when a snowstorm hits or a hurricane hits or whatever your environment is. There, you know, We had a lot of feedback that our prices were not where people wanted it to be, but there's a reason that our organization continues to operate in a, in a very strong position and is able to continue to expand without having to ask for additional money. And that, that to us is critical is that we were able to repay, for example, the counties, their original grant, and they gave us a grant and we paid it back anyways. We've been able to continue to operate and acquire hardware and systems as necessary to continue to operate in an efficient manner. And then also be able to, every time we have a customer sign, I don't have to go to the bank and, or go to a line of credit. I'm able to just continue to self-fund myself. So from a financial perspective, we're very stable. We are looking at what the, the cost for a total deployment across the whole Eastern Shore would be, And so, you know, cash is king always in any organization, private, public, it doesn't matter. And the challenge is always trying to make sure that there's, there's monies available. And today there isn't really a lot available for municipal broadbands uh, entities that I'm aware of. We've looked at the CAF2 funding. We've looked at the EDA. We've looked at some of the grants and some of the loans that are available. But, you know, a lot of the original monies that had existed, like the BTOP funding and such, those those funds aren't as available, so it is definitely a, a challenge to provide ubiquitous coverage without you know good funding sources for municipal broadband entities. And so, trying to be very smart about your, how you handle your cash, how you manage your organization, and the asset that you build is is critical to continue to keep it sustainable. Now, when uh, we started, one of the things you mentioned was uh, connecting the NASA facility and, and clearly you know, being able to ensure that, that, that really um, high prestige jobs like that stay in the community are, is important. Um, are there other successes that, that you credit the network with? I mean, is there, is there something where you say, you know what, I know that we're doing a good job because this has happened? There, there's quite a few organizations in any community that need to have mission critical services, hospitals, for example, um, even 911 folks, we, we do provide the Eastern Shore 911, a lot of their backhauls to their different radio sites to be able to speak to the emergency services folks. So we have, you know, we have the simplest of services, a, a laundromat that has one meg of internet service all the way up to folks that are doing mission critical things such as rocket launches and everything in between. We, we pride ourselves on the fact that our network is very reliable. We pride ourselves on the fact that our responsiveness of our staff is, is always top notch. And we think that 
it's more than just the fact that you know our prices are good or bad or otherwise. It's about the the way we handle ourselves and and, and present to the community in a way that's professional, responsive, and provides them a service that is not matched anywhere else. I mean, most people are used to, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. I mean, the, you know, there's a lot of things on the Eastern Shore that are very relaxed, and that's one of the beauty things about being here is being able to come here and, and just enjoy what it is. But we try to make sure that we make everything a priority so people understand that they're important to us. So is there anything else that, that we should touch on before we wrap the show up? We're proud of the success story that we have here, and we feel like this is something very reproducible in other areas and other communities. You know, the, the key that we always have had is keeping our costs as low as possible, taking in-house things that we can, but also accepting the fact that there are times that having good contractors to work with us so that we continue to be able to expand at a good rate. And then, again, trying to maintain our finances in a, in a fashion that allows us to operate on a go-forward basis and not not put ourselves in a position of having to stop because of a, a capital issue. So I think those are all lessons and, and things that are I feel like we've done well over the past 10 years and we hope to continue to do well over the next decade or two or hopefully as long as we survive and as long as we thrive. Right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And I really appreciate you taking time to come on the show and share what you've learned with our, with our listeners. Well, thank you very much. That was Christopher with Robert Bridgem from the Eastern Shore of Virginia Broadband Authority. Check out Muni Networks for more stories. They're tagged ESVBA. We have transcripts from this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast, you can access them anywhere you get your podcasts, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter. You can do that at ILSR.org. We want to thank Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed to Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening to episode 294 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Music